Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews will be in chapter 2 today, verses 5 through 9. Page 1001 on the Pew Bible provided for you. Uh, Heads up, next week, uh, Pastor Abe Stratton will be preaching. Uh, I hesitate to add a kind of because it's, it's actually preaching, but it's not, it's not going to be a normal sermon. Um, several years ago, Pastor Abe had memorized and then rehearsed. He calls it quoting. I think that's, that's the wrong word. Like, it's not a quote when it's the whole book. Uh, the whole, quoted the whole book for us on a Sunday morning. And that was his idea, but he's been working it back up. And next week's a great week for him to rehearse that for us here at the beginning of our series or several weeks in at least. And of course, we'll pick up the book where we leave off today uh, the following week. So be in prayer for him this week. Well, you're in a boat. You're out in the middle of the Pacific. You have no fuel. You have no food. You have no means of navigation. You are as good as dead. And you are afraid of death. But you've got a satellite phone and you get a call. Not sure who would call. Maybe the Coast Guard, maybe the Navy. And they say, we are coming to get you. And of course, you reply, yes, yes, thank you very much. But it's not necessary that you come all the way to get me. Hold that thought, which you would have never actually had in those circumstances. Let's read together Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere... What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while while he while was made for a little while was made lower than the angels namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone Why was it necessary for our salvation for the eternal son of God To become a man. Why was it necessary for the eternal Son of God in seeking to save us to come all the way to us? Was it a a gesture of solidarity? Or was there something deeper. Why was it necessary? Well, today begins a series of four sermons through Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5 through verse 18. Over the next four or five weeks, 
If you want to make that a matter of meditation, maybe you're not in the Bible every day right now, I would commend that practice to you. Uh, Maybe you'd start by just flagging this passage in the Bible and reading it and thinking on it with each day, and that will pay you back as we work our way through this small section in four weeks, verses 5 through 9. The author of Hebrews has instructed us to pay much more close attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. And in pondering out loud and consulting with a friend on staff uh, or one of our elders, excuse me, as to whether I should make this one sermon with four parts or four sermons, he said, well, last week, didn't you and the author tell us to pay much more careful attention? And I just looked at him and I said, we're going to do it. We're going to do four weeks. It's a little gutsy. Um, Well, this is God's word for us this morning, this little package of verses that heads us into a section that is focused on this question or this subject, rather, of the incarnation of the Son of God. Now, there are other things and other aspects of Christ's work that are touched on here, but it is the incarnation of the Son of God that is the particular concern and focus. Verse 9, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely namely Jesus. Verse 10, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should, be make, should, should, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through, through suffering. He's not ashamed to call them brothers. He became one of us. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. A little preview of where these verses are going. There are several purpose clauses and indications as to the purpose of the incarnation, the necessity of a human, a fully human Savior, and we do well to ponder it over, as we will, several weeks. We begin with two very different questions, two very different questions, and we'll be meditating here on verses 5 through, through 8. The incarnation is not something that is obvious to us in our mere human condition. And it's not obvious to to our neighbors around us or to the nations about us that we need a fully human Savior. And that, in the first place, is because of a particular view of God that is deficient, that is not true to the way that God is. Uh, but as well, a deficient view of humanity, a deficient understanding of what humans are. And wrapped up with this, the human problem and what we, what we need on account of who we are and where we're at right now. And the question that every human asks is, what is man? Whether they ask it explicitly or not. What is man? What is humankind? What is it to be to be Human. And we have answered that differently for ourselves over the centuries. Uh, the human is, is a thinker. You are what you think. 
I think, therefore, I am at the, the very basic, the basic component of human existence is that of thinking, as a, we're a thinking being. Uh, you're a worker, might be one answer. That you are what you can produce, what you can, what you can make. And this may be a matter of philosophy for Marx, but it may also just be our station and our orientation of our lives to work. And the messaging that we get convinces us way deep down that our worth and our dignity and our ultimate meaning is in what we can produce our work. Uh, You're a consumer. Might be another message that you tell yourself or that you have heard. You are your style, your lifestyle. There used to be no such thing as a lifestyle. What is a lifestyle? You, you are what you buy, and, and you, are the, you are the sum total of the various collections of products and things and styles that you, that you tend to select, and you're marketed to accordingly. You are what you feel way deep down, What you feel about yourself is the truest thing about you. It's the most important thing about you. It is you. What you feel you are. And in some respect, each of these says something true about us. We are workers and we consume things and we're a little different from each other and have different tastes and that's fine. And and we do have an inward experience of life and we do think but the problem when these become a dominating overarching philosophy is that they take something that is true about us and make it the total sum of us. And whether it's taught in a school or caught from just living, uh, we can think of ourselves in these, these terms. What is man? What is man? Ultimately, if, if God is not a part of that question, you have to say that Man is mere material and the movement of material, energy, and at base, man has no ultimate meaning. Maybe some temporal meaning in this life, but no ultimate meaning. The author of Hebrews takes us here to a passage in the Old Testament that poses a different question. It has been testified somewhere, and it's not that he doesn't know where, although that's kind of comforting. I may use that sometimes. Um, It's it's to keep us focused. We don't want our preaching to be encyclopedic, uh, always citing chapter and verse. It can be helpful. There is a place where passages come from, but it's also okay to do this. You know, in Scripture, it's been said, it's been testified somewhere. What is man? Oh, but he doesn't stop there. And we can't stop there. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Oh, for this we need to turn to Psalm 8. And you can get there easily enough in your Bibles if you open your Bible to the very middle you, have, you don't even need that great an aim to do this. Uh, open your Bible to the very middle and then go to Psalm, verse, Psalm 8 and toward, this, toward the head. 
he is quoting Psalm 8. And this is this psalm is a meditation on on man and mankind but not on man alone and mankind alone but mankind in relation to the maker of man and mankind now let me read the whole thing O Lord our Lord how majestic is your name in all the earth You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, You've been with us for a few weeks in the book of Hebrews. And here, at the head of this passage, he says, now in speaking about the world to come, and we know that he's been talking about Jesus. And now he's just said he's been talking about Jesus in the age to come. Jesus is seated on his throne, and all things are brought into subjection to him. He is king. But this psalm seems to be pointing back. Now, it's doing both. I say it seems to be pointing back because, well, you might be familiar with, you can turn there if you like, but we'll be in Psalm 8 for a bit. Sounds a little bit like Genesis 1. Actually, the passage that the author of Hebrews quotes is itself a meditation on Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish over the, of the sea and over the birds and of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I've given it all to you. Well, back to Psalm 8. John Calvin begins his Institutes in the Christian Religion, which he began in his mid-twenties with this brilliant introduction. Nearly all the wisdom which we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But while joined by many bonds, which one proceeds and brings forth the other is not easy to discern. And Calvin will lead us on a journey as to which comes in which order. 
so that he eventually says, man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends back to his own. Well, that is a good word. Well, this here is David, a man of God, meditating on the first chapter of the Bible and thinking on humankind and how majestic is God's name in all the earth. He made all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes. That's interesting. Dave has a context. David has a context in which there are enemies and threats and nations that oppose God's anointed, even him as king. But out of the mouth of babies and infants, he's established strength. What is that? When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers and the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, how many stars are there? We're getting good at looking at those. I heard it asked recently, do we know whether there are an odd number of stars or an even number of stars? I thought, I love that. It's a stupid little question. And you think, oh, well, of course. No, we have no idea. <laughs> we, can't, we can't tell the difference between an odd or an even number of stars out there. We can just say there are more and more and more. When David looks at the heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, then he asks, what is man that you're mindful of him? He doesn't say, what is man? He doesn't say, how small are we? He says, how small are we? And, and what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Son of man is shorthand for humanity. We are, we are those who bear the image of God. We are his sons in that sense. We come from him and we represent him. And where we go, his glory goes, which is why he instructed the first human couple, in that case Adam in chapter 1, to have dominion over the earth and to fill the earth. Well, animals would fill the earth and, and, in, and in a way they would reflect the glory of God in their particular way, but but not in the special way that those who bear the image of God reflect the glory of God. He made the earth and he set us in it and he set us about it and through it so that his glory might be reflected in a special way through the filling of the earth with his image bearers. Now, David here doesn't have a, an, imp, an improperly high view of humanity. So apart from God, we ask, what is man? And we may answer, the best among all creatures. We are the greatest, the most intelligent. Look at the things that we can do and build and the problems that we can solve. Now, mankind is, in the West is harder on ourselves these days. We're ashamed of ourselves. But in other eras, we have been proud of ourselves and in a way, just look at humanity. This is amazing what we can, what we can do. And so in a respect, they, they view humanity as too high. And apart from God, we view humanity as too high. For we are higher than God. There is no God. And at the same time, it's too low. Because we would say that man is not made by God. And so all we are is 
man. We are only from dust, and we will only ever return to dust, and that is all we will ever be. Well, how is that a high view of humankind? But David here, at the same time, sees man as small and lowly, and in that respect, humble. But it is precisely because humankind is known by and minded by and cared for by a God who is in the highest heavens, that humankind has dignity and that a man, as small as he knows he is, does not lose hope. For God is bigger than all these heavens and all these starry hosts, and yet there is a beaming joy about this psalm. It, it's, it begins and ends with praise. How majestic is your name in all the earth? In all the earth where your glory is on display, in particular in humans who cover the earth and represent you as your image bearers wherever they go. This is a psalm, a meditation on mankind and on God. But it is a proper meditation on the nature of humanity and the glory of God through humanity because it is a meditation on man in light of God in contrast in relationship to God in light of God's revealed word in the scriptures, Genesis chapter 1. David has been laying awake thinking about these wondrous things and now he's put his pen to paper and he has these things to pen for us inspired by the Spirit so that we might rehearse them today even in preaching through the book of Hebrews. Now this passage, this psalm, speaks to us about the nature of humankind. We're not mere matter, but we are made by a maker. We are created. We are not created like a rock is created, but we are animated. We are creatures with the breath of life in us. But even more than the breath of life that animals have, we have the very stamp of our maker. And when Genesis speaks of us as being made in God's image, this passage here speaks of us as having, being crowned with glory and honor. That's why we say this is a meditation on those verses in the first verses of the Bible, because to be made in God's image, the, the image in the ancient Near East, a king would be the image of the God that his people believed in. And, and in that way, the king represented the invisible God. And what the king said and did and where he went, so went and said and did the God. Well, human beings are made in God's image. We are little kings, little vice regents. This is why it's said that we have dominion over the earth. We are crowned with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. And he talks about the beasts of the field and the fish and Some ask, well, this has to either be about the Messiah to come or it's about a meditation on creation and they pit these against each other. I don't see why. In light of what we get in Hebrews, it is not both, which I'll show you. But this just seems to be working right off the page in Genesis 1. So we have to say this looks back. This is David reflecting on humanity. And this is why out of mouth of babes and infants you've established strength because of your foes. There are those who shake their fist at the Lord, the God of heaven. And the sound of another image bearer crying in a cradle is the sound of God's glory breaking back into the earth. You can't stop him. 
we keep coming. And while Satan would seek to affront God and his glory by taking the lives of people, even babies, so the sound of a cry of the very next baby is a reminder that he will get his job done. As he has promised that a son of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, so another crying baby is a sign that he is still at this and he will fulfill his promises. That's what that means. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Speech speaks to us about the nature of humankind. And we need a reminder about who we are as those made in God's image. We need more than that, as we'll see. But we need that reminder. And we need to come in here on the Lord's day and praise him for his majestic name in all the earth and pray that all the earth would praise his majestic name as we prayed for the Riyamalayu this morning. That's what those prayers are about. It's about his name being known in all the earth and his image bearers being converted from those who are denying him glory in their thoughts and lives and actions and heart to those who give him praise and sing to him in just this way, just like we are today. How majestic is your name in all the earth? It also speaks to us about our purpose, those who are to have dominion over the earth. Now, this is the right question. You have set your glory above the heavens. What is man that you are mindful of him? It's the question we ask when we're mindful of our smallness, the shortness of life, our weakness, but also the care and attention of a very great God. This isn't a despairing question. This is a, an encouraging question, a rhetorical question. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity speaks about human pride, the great obstacle to Christian conversion. In God, he says, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison in comparison. You do, not, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So part of what we do here on the Lord's Day is we come to be humbled, and we do that by looking up in praise to God. We start with songs that begin just that way, that call us and help us call one another into the worship of God. We began with a verb, behold our God. We do that on purpose. We call one another into the praise of almighty, majestic God and his name. And then we confess our sins together and take comfort in his assurance and give him thanks and sit under his word together because his name is majestic and we intend to know him so it's the right question and we come to make sure we are a people who are always ever asking the right question and finding a hopeful answer in the word we begin with two different questions what is man but that is not enough no what is man that you god are mindful of him And now a simple observation. We can come back to our text in Hebrews. 
in verse 8, it says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he, he left nothing outside of his control. Hmm. But at present, okay, so this helps. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And that should resonate with our experience. Experience personally, internally, as we know ourselves, or experience in the world as we look around us. Every addiction is humanity, mankind, in subjection to a substance. Subjection. Think of a king and a subject. A king has a subject, and the subjects are subject to the king. They're submitted to, given to, obedient to, in subjection to the king. That's what subjection means. In every thoughtless, reflexive outburst of anger at our loved ones, we have an evidence that man is in subjection to his passions. Often in pride that he is God and not to be offended. In every tornado and tsunami and earthquake, we have mankind in subjection to nature. It was not meant to be that way. In every abuse of state power, we have mankind in subjection to mankind, just other men. In every cry of a mother and a father over the death of a child, a miscarriage, or the alienation of a child, there is an evidence that we are not in subjection, and all things are not in subjection to, to God. In every broken, sad, terrible, wicked, evil thing, and these are often all tangled up together, there is a reminder that at present we do not see everything in subjection to him. No, we do not. If God is like this, then how could this happen to me? Well, the scriptures don't say all things are presently seen in subjection to him. In our fear of death, which we try to we try to put death out of our minds, but but when a loved one is sick and we get that phone call and we see if we see the phone number of a loved one and we think, oh maybe, oh I hope not, and we answer the phone and okay, good. It, with every with every flicker of fear, anxiety over the end of life, ours or someone else's, there is a reminder that we are, oh yes, very afraid of death. And this is probably the most, it is the greatest manifestation that all things are not in subjection to humanity, is that we face an inevitable end of life. Death is the great enemy. And until death is in subjection to us, we are not in our proper place or fulfilling our God-ordained purpose. Well, what hope is there for humankind? What hope is there for humankind? Deaths of despair are on the rise. You might have caught this headline. I hadn't heard that expression. Maybe it's been around. Deaths of despair on the rise in the U.S. 
Why here and not in other nations? I'm not so concerned about the comparison at the moment, but let me read a few things here. In a recent paper, a journal of psychi- in a journal of psychiatry, notes the upward trend in despair-related deaths in the U.S. These include, what are those? Deaths by suicide and from poisoning from drugs or alcohol. So we take our lives in various ways and then we, we poison ourselves in a less direct way. But nevertheless, we're poisoning ourselves with drugs and alcohol. The increase in higher, uh, is higher than is among the control group of 16 other nations. Reasons for the rises in despair. In Pennsylvania, scientists and others researching this speculate about the reasons for the increase in despair-related deaths. They note that humans are wired to seek certain things, such as food, comfort, mates, and companionship, and that the brain reinforces these behaviors through dopamine releases. They also note how our society has shifted from uh, being a hunter-gatherer uh, society. I just chuckled at that. Um, here we are at, at just, there, there's good work being done to try to understand what's happening and we can appreciate that. But you're like, oh, the problem is we're not hunter-gatherers anymore. And there was a dopamine release that comes with the work of hunter, hunting and gathering. And those societies had overall greater health and higher levels of companionship and cooperation. And they also had plenty of surprises to generate uh, dopamine releases. Like, the field of anthropology has confirmed the basic picture of life in small-scale societies on all continents. And they get into things like family structure. It's getting a little closer. Yes, there's meaning in work, and, and we can structure our lives to isolate ourselves, and, and uh, so others will work on, on some of those things. And we should wish our neighbors are not in despair. But we all die. And the fear of death plagues us all. And that fear of death is the driver for all manner of misalignment of our life and purpose and hopes and dreams and discouragement and unhappiness. So that poisoning ourselves for some might be a logical conclusion of reflecting on the question, what is man, when there is nothing left to ask? And we all see the problem, but we do not all agree on the problem. If we are merely workers, maybe you'd tell yourself you need and we need economic opportunity, merely thinkers, maybe it's education, merely consumers, more things, we just keep buying and buying and buying. And if we're mere feelers, deep down, we are what we feel that we are. Maybe we just need the public affirmation of who we feel that we, we are. Well, friends, you are more than workers, and you are certainly more than your, your feelings, and you are more than consumers. And how do we know? Well, we know because of what God has revealed in creation, and he's told us about it in Genesis chapter 1. But Genesis chapter 1 isn't the end of the Bible. We have a whole Bible that's going somewhere. And that going somewhere begins in that chapter. We know that we are more than these things, not only because of creation, but because of the incarnation. 
not just our creation as humankind, but because of the incarnation of the eternal Son of God as man. You and I need the doctrine of the incarnation. We sing Christmas songs in December. We probably won't talk about this come December, but we also sing other songs. And sometimes I get an email, we should sing more Christmas songs. Like We sing a number of Christian songs. I've looked. There's a whole bunch of them we're singing. But there's a reason why we're not just singing carols and Christmas songs. So that we're not confused that the incarnation is something to be really excited about for one month a year. We'll throw some emphasis in that direction. But I twitch a little bit that there are some songs that if we sang them in July... We would wonder, oh, oh, what are we doing singing this song in July? No, the incarnation is for all of us all the time. We need this doctrine. We don't have a death of Christ without the incarnation. and We don't have the resurrection of Christ without the incarnation and the, the death of Christ. And could there have been another way that God could get it done to deal with the problem of death? The answer is no, there's no other way. And that's why we're slowing down on this topic. You need to feel deep down that there is no hope for you unless God comes all the way to you. And it's not merely a matter of geography and proximity. There are deeper things happening. You need God to come down. And he has come down. The Lord Jesus is just the man we need. Verses 9 through, well, the rest of 9. It's a short passage. Sandy laughs. But we see him for, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Wait, who are we talking about? Namely, Jesus. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that... By the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Namely, Jesus there, I think, is not only because when this author is speaking about Jesus the man, the son become man, he uses the name Jesus, but because the, the subject has taken a kind of shift in the paragraph. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. And here's the language from Psalm 8, crowned with glory and honor. Yes, that of humankind. The glory, but greater than that, glory and honor of the exalted son because of his suffering and his, his death. Psalm 8, you see, not only pointed back as David was meditating on Genesis 1. For David has no reason to praise God with hope in the God who declares victory over his enemies through the cries of babies. He has no hope to do that unless he has also been given a word from God, as he was, concerning one of his sons that would sit on his throne and rule forever. With a perfectly righteous reign. With some hint that there was even more in, more in it than that. And of course as the Lord Jesus comes. He is that greater son of David. 
the real human who will sit on the real throne of David's son. He is the greater son of David. And he is the reason why David had hope in looking back at Genesis 1. But in looking back at Genesis 1, you see, David saw more than a mere description of the glory of humanity. But he saw the the trajectory and the direction of humanity through his greater son, the greater human to come. For Jesus is the true human. That's what this passage in Hebrews is telling us. What we read about humanity, and that it all was given in subjection to subjection to humanity, isn't exactly true, hardly true. Oh, but there is one human, and here is this morning's reason for the incarnation, why it is necessary, so that the eternal Son who became man would represent us and so fulfill. God's purpose for humanity. Psalm 8 points us back to creation but does not leave us there. For it gives us a kind of template for the one who is to come. It points us to our destiny. And not just that man who would come. Who would be the true and greater man. A new Adam. Not like the old one. Who didn't put himself, who didn't put all things in subjection under him and keep that command, but subjected himself to the creature. No, this man, this passage points not only to this second Adam who would not be like the last, but to us who will experience the fulfillment of God's purpose for humanity. Christ was crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering and his death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, by everyone there, he doesn't mean that every person without distinction. Later, he will say he brings many sons to glory. And it's the children of Abraham by faith that that he is speaking of here. But even this little point for everyone indicates to us this whole passage is floating above the surface of things a bit. At God's purpose for humanity broadly. The son of God came in order to represent us. And thereby fulfill as a man God's purpose for humanity. So that apart from identification with this true man. We have only the hopeless identification with man. With Adam. And with mankind as mankind is in this present age. Sailing on toward a certain death. And we have only fear to face until the day comes. No, but there is hope for us because the Lord has come all the way to us. And he has tasted death for us. And the rest of these passages we're going to look at are going to tease out a little more why that was necessary. Why is it that he had to come all the way to us and there wasn't another way that he had to taste death for us? And so you can pray as I'm preparing those messages and as we we head there together. But remember this. 
There's a reason why there are deaths of despair anywhere, regardless of how high they are or which country has the worst number of deaths of despair. There are deaths of despair everywhere. And where there are deaths of despair, there are still deaths and the fear of death. And there is no hope for us in the face of death if we do not understand our purpose as those made in God's image who belong to him in order to reflect his glory, if we do not understand our plight as those who have abdicated our responsibility to reflect the glory of God, who are like our father Adam, and even if we acknowledge all of that, there is no hope for us apart from an understanding of and faith in the plan and the promise of God. For right now, we do not see all things in subjection to Christ, Oh, but one day, Christ, that true man who brings about a new humanity, oh, we will see all things in subjection to him. And we will see him face to face, and so we will know ourselves truly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the capacity to, even before praying to you, to praise you, not like the rocks do, but, but as personal beings brought into personal relationship with you and to pray to you. And how hopeless our plight if we were to live and go on living without purpose or some pseudo purpose or some part purpose. Workers, consumers, those trying to express our deepest feelings and some identity apart from you. But we give you praise that you speak a plain word to us about who we are. And it's a good word. And so we pray for help to take great encouragement. Not only in the truth that we are created by a God and this God and you but you have incarnated yourself in the person of your son so as to bring us to yourself to bring many sons to glory. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.